Joe Fox here, retired chief of transit NYPD, listening to the Mike Sappho podcast. Welcome, my friend. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. Finally. Uh, things are great when they, we wait for them, right? I don't know. The life of an NYPD chief, you're retired. You're supposed to be just smooth sailing and no one's busier than you. I'm failing at retiring. You got to answer me one question. I go on your website and it says you're a motivational speaker. You're doing this, you're doing that, and yet all I do is see you on Twitter posting pictures of flowers, vacation, or every cop from all over the world. Are you really working or is this like a side gig? Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing all the things that I loved doing before, and I'm not doing the things I didn't. I, I basically choose what I do. I, I, know, I know when to say yes, I know when to say no, and it's a great feeling. And you're beyond active on Twitter. You just find cops at 7-Eleven, work in a detail, and you just go over to them, you're taking pictures with everybody. It's actually quite organic. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's one of, the, one of the reasons why I don't feel retired, because it's, it's, you, know, you, you see us everywhere. It, it's, it's, it's really incredible. You just, sometimes you just get that little bit of a stare. You know it's somebody you know, and it, it's really cool. Well, you're a good follow on Twitter because you're with the NYPD so long, and we're going to get to that, but you take pictures with people's kids. You're like, I remember this guy's dad from 30 years. That always blows my mind. Well, I, what I love is when, this, you know, the, the, I've only put a couple of them up. There's a lot of photos. I mean, when you do this long enough, there's a lot of photos of, you know, cops, like, like graduating the academy, and then they send me a picture of when they were, like, in kindergarten that I was at their school. <clears throat> it's, it's really pretty cool. You don't see many of them because at the time... Most of those pictures, I had my first pair of glasses, which were like <laughs> Coke bottles and like, you know, like about six inches wide. Uh, I went with the cheap model, not, not knowing I'd be photographed. <laughs> so at some point when I have time, I'm going to go every place that has a picture of me in those glasses and like pull them down. And take them down. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> Horrible. How old are um, you? Um, 62. You look so good. Is that because you never had no stressful jobs? You had no, no worries? Was that nice? You had smooth, smooth sailing, no stressful jobs. Is that why you look so young? You know... People used to say you have a stressful job, mm-hmm. and I said, nah, I live off this stuff. I feed off it. It's not stress. And then I realized when I left that the things that I thought were fun were stressful. And it's really, like, I, I came up with this thing. Like, I, I really believe that, you know, those of us who do this for so many years, in many ways, it's like having an addiction, and it's, it's wonderful while you're doing it. And it's not until you step away from it that you realize you're either better off without it you're okay without it. Um, I kind of feel better off without it because I got, I got all the best parts of the addiction, mm-hmm. and that's the, the connection. You don't go to meetings for your addiction or anything, so this is a, a healthy no, addiction. No, but I do. No offense to company in this room, but I ask uh, executives who are at Comstat every Thursday morning, I say at 5 after 8 on a Thursday, could you please text me <laughs> just so I know where you are and I'm not? And then I, and then I usually send them back a selfie of me sleeping. <laughs> We met years and years ago, and I'll never forget when we met. Uh, you had a huge influence on my life. You, uh, you showed me a big picture book of all different beach weddings, and you told me how you would crash weddings. You crashed a wedding down the Jersey Shore. That's funny. Are, are you still into crashing weddings, but you're more into photography, right? I can't believe you remember that. Of course. That's, that's so funny. It was actually a couple that had just gotten married, and the photographer was taking pictures on the beach in the Jersey Shore, <laughs> and there's me like 40 feet away, like, you know, my hands up going like this. In, you know, on the job at the time, by the way, so dangerous that was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. photobombing weddings. Yeah, before it was fashionable. And photography is still a huge passion of yours, right? Uh, I love, I love taking pictures. I love photography because, you know, years back I'd be at this beautiful sunset, and I, and I, and I had a conversation with myself and said, you know, why don't I just enjoy it rather than photograph it? And what I came up with is that I could do both, but what's 
the point of taking the photograph is like when I'm experiencing a moment of beauty and peace, I know that by photographing it, I'm going to get to share it with others. And I, I think that's what like life is all about. You and, know, you're sharing. and you're preserving that memory. Even if it's not the greatest picture, you remember where you were when that nice sunset yeah. was going on. When I, when I do my leadership presentations and stuff, it's, it's with PowerPoint. And, and uh, these, a lot of them are my photos. And it's great because sometimes the stuff gets so, so, so deep that I get tired talking about it. <laughs> and it's, it's great to throw up a slide and say, hey, that picture, I was mm -hmm. here. And that one, I did this. And that one, I did that. And they're nice icebreakers. I love on your Twitter again, the traveling you did. I saw you in Washington, D.C. You were in London. You were in Hawaii. Yeah. You big traveling guy? I, like I say, I, 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 I do what I want to do, and I, and I don't do what I don't want to do. And, and to traveling, um, I mean, Washington, D.C., I'm, I'm very honored. I'm on, on the Medal for Valor Committee. Chuck Schumer nominated yeah, you, right? Yeah, and so I go there four times a year just for that and a couple of other things. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, that's amazing because we see stories. And by the way, anybody listening to this, anybody in the police agency, uh, July 31st, uh, the submissions close out for agencies all over the, all over America. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Like we go through these, and then next spring, the president actually gives the people selected awards. And then <coughs> the other reason that thing that brings me to Washington is I I'm a uh, on the board of directors of Five Star Life Insurance, which is an insurance company that provides life insurance to soldiers and first responders and and, and the National Guard and I love being with that group of people because they really, like, they care about their mission because they know they give the best product to 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 that group of people that that who who can't find it anywhere else. And how's that whole thing worked? Five star. It's a it's it's a it's a it, you know national company. Mm -hmm. um, and they be, they began. They're affiliated with AFBA Armed Force Services Benefits Association, and. They uh, was actually started back around World War II because soldiers couldn't get life insurance, and, and, and they kind of picked up the slack. And what we're very proud of is that when there were a couple of companies that offered packages for soldiers, but when they, uh, uh, when the Iraq War started, the all these other most of these other companies all dropped out and stopped providing that package. So this company was very proud that, that they they still did. That's loyal from that company too. Very loyal, and you know, it, listen, it's a, it's a business that serves people who serve others. Um, it, it is a business, but we provide the best package in the in the, in the best way possible. In Washington D.C., you were showing uh, pictures of presidential seals on all the chocolate. Did uh, you get to meet the president though? I'm, you have such a great mind for detail. Uh, I, I, well, if if standing in the same room with him was meeting him, okay, and I can tell you this. Um, his hair is not nearly as bright in person. <laughs> it's not nearly as big in person. It, it actually doesn't look that bad. <laughs> so there's something, I guess, I guess, you know, if, if you're going to have hair like that, you know, do most of you, make sure people see you in person. No picture with him? Good. No photo. I said, I'm no a big photo. picture guy. No However, there was a great moment which taught me what people who love him love about him. Um, there's, there's an officer, and I'm going to leave his, his, his name out for now. But oh, you can say it. It's okay. He's an Oregon <laughs> trooper, and he, he was shot 11 times. Oh, God. And amazing heroics. And he's in plain clothes. He's off the job. Now, you know, he's, he's got you – know, you're shot 11 times. You don't just walk away from that, even though you may look like you did. And as he's reading these stories very proudly, he turns to him and says, you look pretty good for shot 11 times. <laughs> and everybody laughs, including him. And he says, you must have some great doctors where you are. <laughs> 
and I thought, you know what? That's that's that like authenticity that people love. It it, it was kind of reckless, mm-hmm. but but it worked at the moment. And the, the person laughing the most is the guy who was injured. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Next time you got to meet him and get me a picture. Maybe get him on the show, right? The three of us will do a show together. Well, well, you, you got a couple of other presidents, so maybe after <laughs> them. Hey, one. I want to talk about one more of your photos, and then we'll talk about the whole policing thing and stuff, the boring stuff. You were in Hawaii, and yeah. you took some cool pictures of like the floating lanterns. What's that all about? Is that like a tradition thing? It was like floating on water. It's it's a lantern, <clears throat> lantern floating ceremony, and what it is, it's it's a. Um, it's done all over the world, but this particular event is sponsored by the Shinyo Buddhists. And um, Shinyo is a, a Buddhist sect. It was started back in the 70s. And it basically, Shinyo it means the light. And the, the idea that we are, we are all the light. And, and yet, you, you know, you, there was 40,000, 50,000 people mm-hmm. at this beach in Hawaii. You get this lantern. You have three panels that you could write things on. Intellectually, in in my mind, I knew what this was. I knew it was important, but it's not until they put me in a, a room, which was really a tent outside, and I wrote that I was like blown away. I mean, <clears throat> you, you know, when you when you start to feel emotions, like your your heart rate changes, um, you, you feel you feel the heat coming to your body, and legs start to shake a bit. That that happened. I and I, I wrote these three messages. Um, one was a message um, about my nephew Michael, who died in the towers. Um, another was about humanity and all, all, just all, all that is good in the world. And another was about a message of, of love and caring for all the people who are suffering and have suffered and will suffer for the loss of a loved one. And then we all go out together. It's a beautiful ceremony. Her holiness uh, speaks with us. And, and, and we go out and, it, and you'll, you set off this lantern. And, and here you are with thousands of lanterns going out in, into the into the ocean you know where the where the ocean meets with the with the sunset the horizon the, the sky and, and it was very interesting because I, I had this thing that I held this lantern that I held for, for about an hour or two and when I finally put it in the water as I was putting it in I, did, I didn't want to let go of it like I felt such a connection to what I had written and then once I put it in the water I wanted it to go out and at one point, a wave kind of started to push it back in, and I, like, I ran over and pushed it back out. And I thought later in my hotel room, I think that's what happens when, when people pass. You know, we, we don't want them to leave. We, we're sorry for their loss, but at some point, we come to grips with the fact that they're where they're supposed to be, and we want them there. How can I continue from that? It's been a great <laughs> podcast, Chief. <laughs> that, no. <laughs> that's intense. Yeah, it was it was pretty powerful. I mean, just being with all those people, experiencing the same thing, it evoked a lot of emotions. There's around fifty thousand plus NYPD officers, civilians, all the way up. Any given time, it's a weird job. It's a r- weird career. Raising your right hand. Here's a gun. Here's handcuffs. Here's a bulletproof vest. Go be a good guy. Everyone has that defining moment. Whether it be you got in trouble, your mom needs you to be a good guy. This. Now I know your dad was a police officer. Yeah. Is that you had was it police officer or bust for you or was there another route you had to go? Um, one of the reasons I am, you know admire so much people who become cops who have no police officers in their background is because it was kind of easy for me. My father was a cop. It was it was basically that simple. That's what I wanted to be. I particularly admire people who come from other cultures and other countries and become cops. Um, but for me, it was really easy. And I, I think what, what did it was 
when I was about six or seven years old, my uncle Eddie, my mother's brother, would say to me at family events, you know, all people around would say, where does your daddy work? And I'd look up and say, my daddy don't work, he's a cop. <laughs> and, and everybody would laugh, and I didn't know why they were laughing, which made it so funny for everybody. Mm -hmm. and, and that would happen repeatedly. <laughs> and it was like in 2000, as a borough commander of Brooklyn South, I, I talked about that in Metal Day at, at the 6-6 Precinct in Borough Park. And I got that same laughter. And, and uh, I realized then, and I worked this into my speech, that the reason I said my daddy doesn't work, my daddy's a cop, is because from my perspective, at six years old, he was not like anybody else's father, and at the time, it was all fathers who worked. He, he, he was away when people were home, he was home when people were away, he, he had an eighth grade education, and people all over the neighborhood constantly came to him for advice. They came to him when they had a car accident, they came to him when their son and daughter-in-law were having a spat, they, they, came, they, they just came to him. And I think in, you know, I just thought that that's who I want to be, somebody who, who people come to for help. And, uh, and, and, and that's kind of all I needed, and that's all I wanted to do. And it didn't deter you that, like you said, he missed holidays, he missed birthdays. It, that didn't deter you from doing it? No, because as many times that he wasn't there, he was there. So, I mean, like there were weekdays when other kids' fathers mm -hmm. worked and he was home. And, like, I'll never forget, um, you know, took me to Prospect Park, climbed trees. I mean, did things. And that affected, I'd like to think it affected how I, how I parented my kids. I mean, that... You know, I, I've seen some families that, you know, the, the fathers in particular, you know, work on a week, on, on during a week, and mm -hmm. the weekend is their time, and, and you know, my, my, my time was with my kids, and I think I got that from my father. Where did dad work? 7-1 Precinct. And I became the CO there. That was my, 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 my precinct command, mm -hmm. which was pretty cool, because I was, I used, to, I used to get up at, you know, roll calls and community gatherings and say, I have to do a good job for the cops and for the community, um, and I have to do a good job for my father. So, That's wild. Yeah, it was in his priest, and it was and pretty cool. You're going to downplay it, because I know your personality, but you are a legend in the NYPD. You're one of the few people in the history of the NYPD, when they mention your name, it's never a bad word being said about you, ever. <sighs> I... Uh, I, I don't know, I literally don't know how this, I mean, there were moments like mm -hmm. this where I say, I, I don't know how this happened. Um, I don't, I, there's a lot of, a lot of happenstance, there, there really is, I mean, I get promoted very early, um, so I, I've been around a while, I, I used to like to say it's kind of like the Mr. Softy truck, mm -hmm. <laughs> even if you don't like ice cream, you, you feel comfort when you hear the, hear the you know, the, the tune coming down the block and the bells and all the kids happy. Um, I... I can I can look back at a, a number of you know reasons that I shouldn't be here, mm -hmm. and and I and those humble me and they make me feel like um, there's a reason beyond me that I'm here and I just try to do the best I can and and, and I think that that mindset uh, I don't know I just uh, I'll never completely believe this. You come on the job, cop lingo. You become a police officer in 1981, the year I was born. So we're sitting across from each other. So I feel 30, a little 38 years ago Saturday. Is it really? Yeah. Well, happy anniversary coming up. Thank you. Thank you. You get assigned to what precinct? Last Saturday. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I get assigned to NSU 10 Neighborhood Stabilization. It was like a version of Impact. It was okay. a training. And we worked out of the 6-1, and we covered the 7-0, the 6-2, the 6-0, and the, and the 7-0. Now, you might have a different perspective because your father was a police officer. But everyone who becomes a cop now, they see the shows, NYPD Blue, they're seeing like all these crazy shows. When was the moment 
you were standing on the corner somewhere on a freezing cold night in January, and you're thinking, are you kidding me? I'm 21 years old. It's 1982. What am I doing? <laughs> Did it happen a lot? Um, no, not no, not actually doubt, but what, what did happen was it was Christmas night and I was on Kings Highway and like <laughs> East 7th Street and it was cold and it was lonely. There was nobody out and, and I was only out of the academy um, a couple of weeks and all of my peers, I heard them like running license plates on the radio and talking on the radio and I had yet to do that. So I became kind of overwhelmed with anxiety thinking, how am I going to learn? So I figured it's really safe here. So I, I went out. <laughs> and I looked at a license plate number. Nobody was looking at me. I was in uniform, of course. I wrote it down, and I kind of practiced in my head how to run a plate. And I stood back in the doorway where no one could see me, and I held up the, the, the piece of paper with the plate number and the code and everything else, and I said, uh, 761 Robert Post 2 to Central K. And he said, proceed. <laughs> and my heart started beating. <laughs> and I said... Uh, 1015, which means run, New York plate, blah, 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 and I said that number. And she said, stand by. And as soon as she said that, I started to almost hyperventilate because I thought, what if it comes back stolen? What am I going to do? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea why I just did this. This was really stupid. It was a really bad idea. And it was the longest, like, 10 or 15 seconds of my life. And she came back and said, 17, all clear, which means fine. And I just said that was, like, really dumb. I'll never do that. I don't know why I did it. And that was the first plate I ran. But that's my only regret. Running the plate, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Not coming on the job. I always, uh, you know, you, you hear about the heroic arrest. We'll have some fun now. I never say worst because I always feel that's a silly word. How about the silliest arrest that you make an arrest and you're sitting at the precinct station house and you're thinking, oh, my God, I arrested someone for this. If my friends who think you're this, you're Joe Fox, you're the big bad cop now in Brooklyn. I want one of your bad first arrests. You're like, oh, my God, do I have to really tell my friends that I arrested a guy for blank? Let me think. I... I'm going to share this with you that well, I think of a bad arrest or an arrest that I say, oh, my God, uh, how, how did I make that arrest? But I once pronounced, well, my partner and I, actually my partner, pronounced a woman dead and she wasn't dead. But, but uh, it, we, we went, yeah, it was like East 3rd and, and between Avenue J, uh, some off Avenue J in the 7L, and a woman hasn't been heard from for a week. So the super brings us to the rear of the apartment up the fire escape. So we climb in, we, he, we go in the window, and as soon as we open the window, the two of us look at each other and say, it's not that bad, meaning the smell. Because mm -hmm. we're going in there thinking, this is going to be bad. She's in there a week. So we start looking around, and my partner, Mike Collins, uh, goes into the bedroom and comes out and, and does one of these kind of like an umpire when he you know, says, out, he's, he's, you know, she's dead. So I look, and she appears to be dead. <laughs> And uh, so, I mean, that's all we need to know, right? She mm -hmm. looks dead. And I, I, now I go out, uh, so we get on the radio, we call for the sergeant, tell him we have a DOA. And we, so I go out into the building, so now there's one or two people who are coming out now. You know, this is a lot of elderly in the building. And one woman says, what happened, officer? So I, so I look at her, and with my most compassionate and empathetic voice, I say, the woman in 3E passed on. And she says, oh, I says, I nod my head. So I go down, I get my little bag with all my papers, I come back up, because you know, it's, it's gonna be a lot of paperwork. The sergeant comes about the same time as EMS. EMS goes inside to, to quote unquote pronounce. <laughs> and all of a sudden they're saying, get this and get that, and they're yelling and they're screaming medical terms, and they say, she's not dead. <laughs> so they work on her. 
So now I come back outside while they're working on her, and now there's like like 15 people out there. And the same woman says, where are they taking her? So I look at her, and with a very commanding posture, I say, we found signs of life. <laughs> like even giving us credit for it. So I guess that's when I knew I was going to be an executive someday. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I could handle press conferences. Yes. <laughs> give credit when it's, when it's bad. Um, and, and she eventually died. It, if they worked on her about an hour. But I'll never forget, we, my partner and I, we get in the car now, and as soon as we get in the car, it was the first time we were alone, and we just spoke, like, started yelling at each other and calling each other idiots, like blaming each other for doing that. Mm -hmm. And this woman with a walker, like this sweet-looking woman, she must have been 80, and she's just coming home, and she says, excuse me, officer, what happened? So back with the compassionate voice, I say, the woman in 3E passed on. And she says, good, she was a no-good, dirty, rotten witch, that one. <laughs> And I just looked at her, and we drove away. And if, and if I didn't experience, like if I would have read that in, a, in somebody's cop book, mm -hmm. I would have said the guy's stretching and he's making it up. Mm -hmm. Like that couldn't have happened. But it did. Since you saved her life a, a little bit, did you write it up? Maybe for a medal. I didn't even think of that. We, we actually gave her 45 minutes. <laughs> that, you. you know what? That's a great one Maybe, hour. In the I wonder if I could go back and write that up. That's a great one hour in the life of a police officer. The ups and downs, the compassion, the fighting. Uh, that hit everything in one triangle. Well, then it was the time that we saw Joe Pepitone, who was a former Yankee. Of course. And we saw him in Nick and Tony's Deli on McDonald Avenue. And he had like an 18-inch hero. It was like 10 in the morning and a six-pack of beer. And we said hello to him. And then like a week later, he got collared in Manhattan for a gun. And I remember saying to my partner, we should have tossed him. <laughs> Thank God you don't Monday morning quarterback, Chief, because if you right. did. <laughs> Good thing I don't. Tell me about, I was two years old, but tell me about policing early, in the early 80s. Was it wild? Yeah, it was, it was wild. And it was, uh, <clears throat> it was basically, whatever the number was, say it was 38,000 of us, mm -hmm. you basically <clears throat> had, you know, 38,000 members doing freestyle. You know, there was no, I, I like to call it the days of apologist policing. You know, if something happened, um, you know, the, the people who led us got up and said, we'll look into it, as opposed to, you know, years later under, under Giuliani and Bloomberg, you know, the leadership, we get up and say, you know, our money's on the cops until we find different, we'll investigate this. Mm -hmm. it was, it's a very important shift, and that, that, that's, that wasn't, that, that's what it was like back then. It was tough because we didn't, we were never, like, we, we were never given a mission. We were never told where to go. I mean, literally not told like what to look for. I mean, that's unconscionable now. You know, you can't even think of cops. We would like look at these pin maps that were outdated. And we go out and like did our own thing based on if you were an, an active cop and we were, mm -hmm. you know, we talked to the detectives, we got our own intel, we found out where the guns were and, and we went out and did our thing. But I mean, it was never like, hey, great gun collar. I mean, in fact, you come in and, and the desk officer sometimes would roll his eyes uh, because it was a lot of paperwork. And, and <laughs> you know, it was just, it, but, but we, you know, we did what we thought was right in spite of what we were extra doing or not extra doing. It's so easy to look back now and be like, oh my God, look how crazy it was. It was burnt out cars. You couldn't walk in the East Village. It was crack this, heroin <clears> there. During the time that it happened, did you know that it was like kind of a shithole? Did you know it was, like, did you, during the time of it, did you know so much stuff was going on or you didn't even like appreciate the time? No, we, we knew. I mean, you know, you just, just, that was life in a city. Because here's the thing: you never, you didn't think it could be anything else. 
I mean, you know, that was, I became a comp a couple of years. I mean, now we're in midtown Manhattan right here. But I became a couple of comps after, I mean, when you went down um, 42nd Street, Times Square, which is now what, what the whole world, you know, comes to, that looked like 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 a like a, a huge version of Rikers Island. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really really bad, and that's just what life was like. I mean, and it's a shame. You know, we couldn't envision what life could be like today. I just wish that people could understand what life was like. You know, people coming from today, people in these streets, and people who live here. It's one thing for the tourists. I'm not asking the tourists mm-hmm. to know how bad the city was and how how much you know. Uh, heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears cops put into making it this way. But I, I think I think we should remember and, and people even who were born 15 years ago should know. It, it's funny you mentioned 42nd Street. Colin Quinn does a New York special like a, a one man stand up and he says when I was growing up if you said to someone your mother works on 42nd Street they would beat the crap out of you. <laughs> now if you say it's like yeah, yeah she works at the Chase Building or at Panera Bread on 42nd Street yeah. while you were dealing with it can you ever imagine now you worked in all, all over Brooklyn you saw some of the places that, truth, cops were scared to walk down. They were very, very dangerous. Seeing the places now, the outdoor cafes, could you have ever in a million years imagined f- not just Times Square, but those rough se- sections of Brooklyn being that beautiful now where the rents are Manhattan prices and there's little, like, boutique hotels? Could you ever have imagined that in your wildest dreams? Uh, n- n- not at all. And it keeps changing. And it keeps getting better. And, you know, it's – and, I mean, the – the, the potential downside to that is people forget how it happened and how it happens. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like cops got us here and, and now they're bystanders. This, cops are still the reason why it's like, like it is. There's other factors. Mm-hmm. You know, there's real estate. There's people throwing money in here. And the, I mean, listen, you know, it's like experts in policing. You know, when you put a, you know, a, a millions of people in a city, you know, being tourists and out there, of, of course it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great environment uh, to suppress crime. But there's, there's nothing that suppresses crime more than, than the co- what cops do today. And going back to what cops did back in the 80s when you were there, you said you had no, not no jobs. I don't want to sound silly. But now when co- I know a lot of cops. And when they go into work, it's like, okay, we have, um, there's been a lot of robberies on this corner, drug dealing on this corner. You guys kind of went in. And so you just drove around and just said, that might be a bad <coughs> guy. Or I just heard gunshots. And you just kind of do whatever you had to do. Like, It was exactly like that. The only direction I remember getting as far as crime trends, it was one day, um, uh, uh, and it was a, a cop in training who came in and said they're stealing a lot of cars on Ocean Parkway. Okay. And, and that afternoon, we saw a, a cameraman uh, with a whole TV set at Ocean Parkway and, and, and uh, the Prospect. And it was like a dangerous, you know, it's right where the people come off the Prospect at 60 miles an hour. So he stops. And what are you doing? He says, my name is Anthony Preisendorf, Channel 11 News. He says, I'm doing a... A story on Ocean Parkway and its counterpart, the Grand counterpart, the Grand Concourse. So he said, he so he said, what's what's crime like here? So now two hours ago they said about, you know, water larcenies. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. So I said, oh, mostly water larcenies, kids breaking into cars and people <laughs> stealing them. And he says, can we put you on camera? Oh. And I said, nah. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, I, I promise, I'll make it look good. And if it's not, it's okay. Oh. And me and Mike Collins got, and Mike Collins had this big curly like Irish afro, and uh, he actually, and I said to him, Mike, you better put your hat on, which he never wore. So he put the hat on, and all of that head came out the side. <laughs> and 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 this guy interviews us, and and we're both like, I, I mean, if you heard w- w- what they cut out, we were basically glorifying copies. 
because we were nervous and we just kept saying about cars and, and victimless crime and that's all they do and everything else is good and they just steal cars and what, what, <laughs> everybody's so happy we just steal cars here and and uh, came out really good. <laughs> and you get in trouble for that? Great point. Um, not only did I get in trouble, nobody even knew. And <laughs> so no one was watching Channel 11 at that time. No. <laughs> and, and if I was like the chief of Brooklyn South or chief of transit and I'm sitting at home and I see like one of my cops on TV, I, I probably would have had like a heart attack in my home, except for the fact that I know that I did that. And when I did it, it absolutely was well intended. I didn't mean to be going around anybody. And the point of that is, as executives, as bosses, I wish we could just for a moment when we hear ourselves saying, what were they thinking? What were these kids thinking? Like, just stop and remember a time. I, I mean, we may, we'll have to take care of it. We may have to, you know, bring discipline. We may have to bring training. But just stop for a minute and try and put ourselves back there. Because what was I thinking? I mean... Give the, the interviews the, on, the, on Ocean Parkway. No, no, <laughs> did, I mean, and, and then, here's the best. We don't even, like, tell anybody after. Like, it doesn't even occur to us. And I was a pretty intelligent guy, even at 25 years old. But it never occurred to me to at least say to the sergeant, hey, just, by the way, when, when you know, I was on TV today, <laughs> what was I thinking? You just mentioned bosses and executives, and you became a, a sergeant, I know I did my research, I made three or four years, yeah. which is very, very young. <clears throat> uh, police officers can go two routes. They can go the detective route or the, you know, the sergeant, lieutenant, captains, all the way up route. What made you want to go? Was it more financially, or did you want to always be a leader? That's a, that's a great point. <laughs> that's a great question. Um, actually, we, um, and I didn't know this until 20 years later, um, Mike Collins was my partner, and he was going to, I believe PTS was the study school back then, and I was going to Mulhern. And I'd get in the car after we both worked late with an arrest or a detail, and the classes were 10 in the morning. We did 4 to 12s, and we'd get in the car at 3 o'clock, and, and he'd say to me, you go to class last night? And I'd say, nah because we didn't get home till three in the morning. I mm -hmm. said, how about you? Thinking he wouldn't. He'd say, yeah, I was there. And I'd say to myself, damn, that's never going to happen again. So what, what we both realized years later is that I didn't want to be a sergeant. I just didn't want him to be a sergeant without me. So you just didn't want Mike Collins to beat you. <laughs> and what Mike will tell you is he didn't want to be a sergeant. He didn't want Joe Fox to be a sergeant without him. And that was it. So you guys kind of like just pushed each other without knowing you were going to push each, each other. other. Really? We really competed in a friendly way. And now once we make sergeant... <laughs> Here we are, and now here's this group of people making sergeant who we saw at our study courses. So now a lieutenant's test comes, and we go to the study courses, and they're all there. So we start going to two courses and three courses because now we're in the game. But um, so as far as, like, no one and – and that's a great question because in my leadership training, no one went you – know, that you were going to be a leader. Um, you know, it's this, it, it's, it was like this mystical thing that I was chasing because now I had a leadership position, so I always – wanted to be a leader, not, not thinking I was. And as a lieutenant, I wanted to be a leader, not thinking I was. And as a captain, I wanted to be a leader, not thinking I was. And it was at a certain point in, in Crown Heights that something clicked. And I said, I am a leader. I feel like a leader. But fast forward, what I, what I, what I teach in my leadership training now is that what I didn't know is that I already was a leader. And leadership is not... Yeah, it can be learned, it can be enhanced, but it's really, it's really about caring, it's about nurturing, it's about connecting, and we're born with it. And when a four-year-old boy hugs his one-year-old sister, he's a leader. 
and no one teaches them how to do that. Just check that out. If anybody has like a five-year-old, you know, a four-year-old toddler and an infant and a newborn, watch how many times the older sibling goes over and just does beautiful, loving things that, that they, they weren't taught. Why? Because that's what, that's what we do. So you didn't even know. You, you were a leader at 24. You were a very young sergeant, 25 years old. Was it rough going into seeing the other cops who were more senior? Like, who the hell is this Fox guy, Sergeant Fox? Was that tough for you? It, it was tougher than I thought it was at the time. You know, we kind of protect ourselves from things. But it, 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 was, it, was, it had its challenges. I mean, I went to a priest. I went to the 6-2 precinct. Most of the cops on patrol, you know, I had at the time, I had three and a half years. Most of them had... 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and it was, it was kind of like, you know, you, like you don't feel you have the credibility and, you, and you, you need to work towards that. Anything, doesn't have to be fun, anything like uh, historical happened while you were a sergeant or a lieutenant when you're like, holy crap, this happened, I was a boss, I became a leader, looking back now, like, like if, just say if you were, um, we're going to get to 9-11 later on, but just say <clears> if you were like a sergeant in the first precinct when September 11th happened, did anything happen on your watch while you were a boss in any of these precincts as a captain or sergeant or a lieutenant? It didn't happen for me until I was an inspector in the 71 Crown Heights. And what it was was, um, it was 1997, I believe, okay. and Justin Volpe um, sodomized and brutalized Abner Louima in the, in the bathroom with a plunger of this, uh, of the, in the 70 precinct. And it was a horrible, horrible time. I think it was one of the darkest times of our, of our history. And cops were literally ashamed to be cops. And even though we, we really should not have been ashamed, because we didn't do that, he did. He did not represent us. And uh, and I and I and it, and it occurred to me. I, I was actually um, given praise at a meeting that Mayor Giuliani and Commissioner Howard Safer had in City Hall, and and um, some very nice things were said about me. But from the community that you know came from the seven zero and seven ones and the six seven precinct, and I decided to take that like photography and share it with others to try and lift other people up. So I had this. I took out my roster, and and group by group, I had five or seven or ten cops come in my office, and I checked them all off until I got to every one of them, and I and I shared that story. The, the nice things that were said about me and what happens in the 71 precinct and said that's not about me that's about you because the person who said it called me captain fox and i was an inspector mm -hmm. and i would emphasize that with these cops and say he doesn't even know me it's not about me it's about what you're doing here and when i started to do those sessions to try and lift these cops up i i, I actually remember saying to myself wow i'm a leader and it's you know these days that i realized that um i was late in the diagnosis i was a leader much earlier than that as we all are Two-part thing with that. You're working that night it happened? <laughs> How'd you know to ask this question? No, I, I didn't. I actually didn't know. That's why I'm... I, uh, I had to... I, I, I was gaining a lot of weight as a precinct commander. And Meaning that a lot of people in the neighborhood liked you and stuff like that? Is that what no, no. A lot of weight. Oh, getting, like actual heavy weight. Yeah. Oh, I, was okay. getting, I was getting fat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I thought your name was heavy. Like you were trying to be no, heavy. Cool. No. Okay. No, I was getting, it was getting hard to tie my shoes. I was up to two and a quarter. And I oh, wow. um, started taking my bike to work. Um, and it's, it's really special. Be, and, and, it, and at some point I started walking the neighborhood. And I still hear the nicest things about me riding the bike in the community and walking. And, and I didn't really ride the bike or walk to connect to the community. Having done that, I connected to the community. Uh, but I, I did that because I was getting heavy. Mm -hmm. So I had the duty. I had the Brooklyn's out duty. Um, 
Uh, meaning what? Uh, the the meaning I covered all of the precincts in Brooklyn South. Okay. So as an, as the inspector, so I because I you know had you know the, the right to be all over Brooklyn South. I lived in the six three, which is in Brooklyn South. I took my car to my home to get my my shirts and things because okay. I used to ride them on the bike and put them in the baby seat in the back. And it was <laughs> kind of funny, you know, riding through Crown Heights. And uh, so I'm coming back and I'm. And I'm, and I'm actually talking to a strike post, uh, a, co- a cop on a, on a post at like 3, 4 in the morning in Canarsie. And I hear this job come over, uh, male black wanted for assaulting a cop, you know, description. So I say, oh, got to go. And I zip across, across, you know, the borough. And I'm within about four blocks away. And this was like Nostrand and Jay, Nostrand and Glen- Flatbush and Glenwood. And I see a male black walking by. So I kind of hit the siren to see how he reacts. If he runs, he's a perp. If he doesn't, he's not. So I hit the siren. He doesn't run. And for some reason, I decided to give him the respect of an explanation, or not really an explanation. Uh, I, I didn't want him to just think I hit the siren to, to stop him. So I hit the window down and said, excuse me. And he looked at me and I said, did you hear shots? We have a call for shots fired. I just wanted to give him a reason I stopped him, even though it wasn't the right reason. I just wanted to restore that bit of dignity I may have taken away by mm-hmm. hitting the siren. And he said, no, of course. I said, okay. And I started to pull out. And I heard 7 precinct sergeant um, have that unit respond to 2-3 in Ditmas or whatever uh, for show up. And something clicked. And I was two blocks away, and I said, eh, they don't need me there. It sounds like something relatively minor. It's all in hand. And I left. And uh, No, and just I, let me explain, Chief. As a duty inspector, you're not going to regular police jobs that you know cops and sergeants and lieutenants usually go to. You're more of a, the big picture. Right, okay. when I get called. And now I would have gone to this because I was there. Mm-hmm. But it's, it sounded like I didn't, I, I, you know, it, like I wasn't needed. So, um, and, I, and I left. So when it became known two or three days later, you know, what happened? Um, I was, I was, uh, on one level, I thought if I could have, if I would have gone there, would I have changed something that happened? And I'm pretty comfortable that I would not have because my style would have been to get there and make sure everybody's okay. All right, good, great job. Have a good night. I wouldn't have been asking pointed questions because I I trust the sergeants who are on the scene, lieutenants, I would have trusted them. And what happened, happened in the station house, and I think it would have happened. But um, if I did go, I'm absolutely certain I would have been demoted the next day. Certain of it. I would have been a full inspector on the scene. And it was the moment that I took to, to, res- to just give that respect to that man that I stopped that kept me from being there. So th- it sounds so like the butterfly effect. You stopping, explaining why you stopped that gentleman on the street kind of helped your career and changed your career 100%. I actually got promoted out of it. Now, I, I, personal question. How would you get promoted out of that? Like, because of the community liking you and maybe be restoring the relationship with the community and the police? What happened was um, the mayor had this meeting with a number of community leaders. And a man got up. His name was Mike Roberts. And he got up and he said something that I, don't believe, I know is not true. He said to be a young male, and was not true, to be a young <laughs> male black and to be in the streets of the 7-0 precinct and the 6-7 precinct, except the 7-1, you're more afraid of the cops than the criminals. And he re- said that repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And the mayor said to him, you keep saying except the 7-1, why? And he said, Captain Fox. Wow. And, and, and this was like at a public, and then of, of course a bunch of people started, you know, 
you know, echoing whatever he said. Um, and I kind of did like a little bit of a postmortem, and it turns out there was a man named Delroy Wright who turns out was friends with this guy. This guy, Mike Roberts, was affiliated with the Caribbean newspaper that was pretty critical of cops at the time. And I never met him. But Delroy came to me about six months before and said he wanted to start a block a, a business association in Flatbush Avenue. And so excited and so idealistic that my end of Flatbush Avenue was going to become the new Metrotech. I went to every meeting. I got yelled at. But I went to every meeting. I supported Delroy. I would have done anything to support that, that what he wanted to do. And it turns out these guys are friends, and that's what he, and that's what he said. Wow. And you know that, I, I, I believe it's in the Bible, how you treat the least of my brethren. I mean, this is a guy. This, I, didn't, I didn't give Delroy all the respect and the time I gave him because of Delroy. I gave it to him because I believed in the people of Crown Heights, and I believed in the businesses, and I, and I cared about being a commanding officer. And um, I got promoted a few months later, and it was, it was very humbling, um, a bit bizarre, because my, my brother, precinct commander, was, was basically removed from command, mm -hmm. and he was away when this happened. And so I, I understood the, you know, the fickle nature of things, and, and, uh, and that's just one of those that it's, I almost shouldn't have been here. Is it true that you and Mike Collins, I wrote down his name, didn't you guys become partners again later on in the career? Yeah, that was really great. Because you're partners together, yeah. and you guys inadvertently lie to each other, uh, fight each other to become sergeants. You both become sergeants, yeah. and when did you work with him again? Yeah, so we, we, I made sergeant, and he made sergeant shortly after. Then I come as the XO to 71 Precinct, Crown Heights. He's the platoon commander there, so we work together another year. Okay. And then we're both kind of getting promoted around the same time, and I become the chief of Brooklyn South, two-star. Two um, and I'm there about a year. And in early 2001, he gets promoted to one-star and becomes my XO. So now we're XO and CO of the same <laughs> borough that we were rookies. It was really cool. Nobody could get anything done. People would come in our office to like get something signed or get a decision, and we just start telling stories. Because imagine being friends 20 years, and now we're together like every day. And we just tell, and it reminded me of when George Costanza would back out of Steinbrenner's office in Seinfeld. And, and Steinbrenner would just keep talking and talking. just start talking, and, and George would just like walk out. That's what people <laughs> would do with us. But, but uh, <clears throat> when 9-11 happened, our greatest personal, and for me it was a very uh, professional, our greatest professional for me was a very personal was my nephew Michael, uh, firefighter. Um, it was... It was only because Mike was there that I was able to take a few hours to go be with my family that night and, and a couple of times throughout those weeks together, or those months together. And it's when I look back and I believe this in life, it was as if he was put there just for me. I'm glad you brought up 9-11. You stress leadership. You're known as a leader. And you just mentioned your nephew. It was also your godson, right? Yes. <clears throat> Who passed away in 9-11 fire department. How do you manage both being you have to manage police officers because now people look at you something happens no matter what they're looking up you're the chief now of brooklyn 9-11 happens correct you were chief yeah I was, yeah so now everyone's looking to you from cops to captains like chief what are we going to do and yet your family had to also look at you dad what do we do we just lost somebody how do you how do you balance that how do you possibly balance that um i i don't I, I guess i can't say how i did it but i think what i learned from that and from just the whole experience that we all share that i I teach rookies, you know, that 
When something happens in your family, you could have two years in a job. They're, everybody's going to lean on you. Mm-hmm. They're just going to lean on you, and you have to you have to be aw- you want to be aware of it because sometimes you may you may want to say I can't do this now. But it was um, it was it was. I mean, the one moment I, r- I remember where that was tough was really tough was days after 9-11, maybe a week, because our, our memory of time was perverted back then. But I remember thinking that I should know what happens if my nephew's found. So I looked at that process, and I, and I went over and saw the, morgue, the makeshift morgue at Bellevue, which was out in the street. It was almost like a village. And I went in there because I needed to, to know, you know what, what would happen if he was found. And, and I saw um, uh, these two, Officer Cork and, and, and Mullen, and there were two cops who were working there who had ME, exp- you know, medical examiner type experience. And, and I gave them my, my number, and I said if anything's found. And, and I left, and I, and I was almost out of there. And I, I thought I was kind of like out of their view. And then I saw a, a, one of those little gators coming in with a flag over it, and it was an FDNY body found. And I stood there off on the side, I thought, and I watched, and my, my heart started pounding, and, and I started to, to feel, I, I, was, I convinced myself, you know how powerful our minds are, you know? I convinced myself that that was Michael, and I was sure of it. And I remember feeling, um, for the first time, uh, anger. Like anger that I was gonna be the one handling this. Oh. And I didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a voice in my ear, like almost like a whisper. And it was one of these officers. It's not your nephew. It's a lieutenant from the Bronx. And I'm, and I'm, and I had this. Feel, in one hand, sense, I was very relieved, and the other sense, I was kind of embarrassed because I felt like I was at my weakest moment, and I thought I was kind of hidden from everybody, and I didn't know that I was seen. And I went back to my car and and um, drove down to Ground Zero. You mentioned in the beginning stress, and you didn't realize you had a stressful job till later on. <coughs> During this time, now you had no. I don't want to say this. This might come up with happy place. You know, sometimes you need a relief. You need an outlet. You're at work. You're dealing with all this stuff. You're home. Now you're dealing with it. Did you ever realize, like, sit in the car, maybe in front of your house, like, holy crap, this is just too much? Not, not consciously. Subconsciously, unconsciously, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did things. I think we all do things. That's why if you walk into a funeral parlor, you know, at some point you're going to see people laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how we're able to do that, but we do. Um, I mean, that night, you know, we pulled down to that funeral, funeral that that um, morgue, and I was driving. I was in a Crown Vic, and Lieutenant Jimmy Woods was passenger, and uh, and he kind of said, is, "Is it okay if I wait out here?" And we were friends, and I said, "Of course." So, and here I am in the middle of this intersection on 34th, I think First Avenue, and there's U.S. soldiers and big guns all, all over the corners. And because I'm not parking, I, I stopped the car in the middle of the intersection. Jimmy's getting out, and I'm getting out. And I decided to do a joke that I've been doing for years. I moved the seat all the way up, like all the way up where you couldn't get in the car. And, and I'm walking away, and I'm in full uniform. And then I watch, I look back, and Jimmy's going to get in, and he actually he crashes his knees into the wheel because he's about six foot one. And he almost falls out of the car, and he's holding on to the wheel, and the wheel's moving, and he's falling down. And... Um, the, the, the soldiers with their guns are laughing, <laughs> and and I went into this this place, and it, and it's and then we I came out after that extreme pain I just described and fear, and got back in and here we are in FDI Drive laughing all the way about how Jimmy almost fell out of the Crown Vic, so I guess I didn't consciously say I need a moment for myself, but I think that's what that's what we did, but but it's 
based on that, it's something that I've been teaching for probably 10 years from now about that we have to take moments for ourselves. It's, it's critical. I'm glad you told that story because my next thing I wanted to hit on was like, you're one of the few chiefs that are considered approachable and friendly and, oh, it's Chief Fa and like such high regards for you. And it was like jokes like that in those times that you stepped up. Is that why you became like, you're just such an approachable person? I think it goes back to what I said before. I really, I, I, uh, I don't. You don't take compliments I, well, put I, it that I, way. <laughs> I don't, I don't completely own, own this. Okay. I, I mean, I don't, um, how do I say this? I, I, there's part of me that, that feels like I still don't know how this happened. So I, I like, I'll never believe, what do they call that? Believe in your own press. I, I just, I just, I still can't, I, st I still can't believe it. I still can't believe that, I mean, I parked down the block, you know, at Midtown South and, and there's 15 cops out there and just the, the respect that they show to me and the, the way they look at me and, and it's, it's very overwhelming and I'll never completely get it. All right, you want to do a few quick questions? Sure. You ready? Best TV cop show ever. Ah. What was the show? No, I can't remember the name. It was in the 80s. It wasn't NYPD Blue. Uh, Hill and Renko. Remember? No. Oh, come on. Which was it? You can say Robin? No, no. Robin? <laughs> I was named Homicide Life on the Street. No, oh, come on. Hill Street Blues. Okay. Hill Street Blues, and and it and, it, and I know you're moving quick. Um, no, that's fine. And, and I'm at the Thanksgiving parade, my first day in uniform with a gun, and I see Hill and Ranko, the two characters, and they're in uniform, and they're on the float. And I look up, and I'm like, wow. And I'm looking at them, and all of a sudden it clicked, and I said, holy cow, they're not cops, I am. And I looked down at myself, and I was like overwhelmed. And then I looked at the people, and I looked back at them, and I looked at me, and I said, holy cow, this is real. Cops usually work most holidays and stuff. Worst holiday meal while working? Worst holiday meal while working. Like one that sticks out? Um, Labor Day. What'd you eat? Uh, junk off the corner. Oh. Just and, and your whole family's barbecuing, drinking, yeah, partying? Yeah, Labor Day. I, I've, I'm st I still don't know how to act on Labor Day. <laughs> it, 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 I know so many cops, and every New Year's they're working. Yeah. What'd you do your first New Year's Eve that you were retired? Oh if you God. chief, and if you tell me you went to Times Square, I did um, not go to Times Square. Okay, what'd you do? I did not go to Times Square. Uh, I I think I, I think I was actually in bed. <laughs> I, I I swear, I actually slept. I, you might have answered this already. Best cop character from a fictional show. Oh man, best cop character. I should say Andy Griffin. Okay. Because it's more in line with how I operate. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Kojak. 37 years with the New York and, City. And now I'm bald. I, yes, know, now you feel right in. I, I, he's even closer to me. I have a lot of athletes, celebrities, authors, and on, and I always ask them about memorabilia. 37 years with the NYPD, did you keep any memorabilia or anything really cool that you like, wow, maybe some memo books or just random stuff that you can look back on and, oh my God, 30 years old? Uh, or? Yes, I, I have a memo book from, I think, 1982 or 83, and we were on Argyle Road, between Church and Caton, it was like a war zone then. I mean, we were there because it was a war zone. I mean, it was drug spots, street lights didn't work, it was really horrible. And this Jeep pulls up to us, and I'm in the driver's seat, Mike Collins is in the passenger seat, and the guy's to our right. And he hits, comes next to him and says, excuse me, officers, I came from Queens and I'm lost, can you tell me how to get to Manhattan from here? And Mike Collins says to him, you can't get to Manhattan from here. And the guy like looks, what? And Mike says, I'm just kidding. 
and I look at him, and it's Joe. It, it's um, Al Pacino. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm hitting Mike Collins. You should get him on the podcast. I'm trying. And I'm <laughs> hitting Mike Collins because Mike is talking to him. And I says, that's Al Pacino. That's Al Pacino. Mike's going, stop, stop. And he's talking to him. He keeps hitting me because he thinks I'm joking. And, I, and I'm, I become such a distraction that Mike says, my partner thinks you're a movie star. And he says, I am. I'm Al Pacino. <laughs> so we escorted him. And, I, and right before we get on the F, FDR, on the uh, prospect, I said, whoa, can you sign my book? So he writes across the book. All my best, Al Pacino. So now I think I'm going to be in trouble because <laughs> if a captain signs my book because I got all this, this stuff Who's this here. Captain Pacino? Yeah. Is coming so I put in a bunch of things there, you know, meal, cost yeah, up, yeah. so I can get to the next page. So now I, I held that book, and when I met Joe Pepitone in the sandwich shop with the six-pack of beer in the sandwich. And probably the gun. And probably the gun. He signed my book. And then I met a guy. We, we saw a guy carrying a TV in Ocean Avenue one Saturday morning. We thought it was a burglar. It turns out he was a... Um, a singer from the Platters, which was a doo-wop group. Okay. Got his autograph. And then I realized I basically diluted Al Pacino's autograph <laughs> with all these other <laughs> autographs. But the biggest was Al, pa- was not Al-, was Al Pacino, and then Joe Pepitone with the gun, and then the guy from the Platters, who knows who he really was. That's my three I'll tell you why I'm a little stars. mad at you. My next question, I'm going to read word for word. Cops are notorious for getting special access and meeting some cool people. Coolest person you met while on the job. So you answered my next question. So now you're, maybe you can just That's co-host it. from me now on. <laughs> what do you miss the least about the New York City Police Department? Um, well, people, I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but people would say you have a stressful job, and I used to say I feed off this, and it's not until I realized that I'm not doing it that there was a lot that was stressful. And it was, um, I mean, I sat with a colleague who's still on, and I watched him in a lunch I mean, every like uh, three or four minutes, his glasses would go would go on from the table. He'd take this phone out of his breast pocket. He'd look at it. He'd put it back. The glasses back. And it was like, it was like as soon as that thing, bam, went, he stopped and looked at it. Now I'm on my phone. You'll see me walking through. It's on my hand constantly. I'm a phone guy, but I decide when to look at my phone, and and then I didn't decide when to look at my phone. And it was like we were programmed. We felt that ping, we had a look. We felt that ping, we had a look. And it didn't matter when. Um, meetings I have no control over, you know, that are important. Um, you, know, you can't, when you're in a team, you can't sit in a meeting and 10 minutes into it say, you know what, <laughs> I don't think this is important, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, Commissioner. Um, you, you hold some great meetings, but I think, uh, let, let's just end this one, okay? All right, great. Let's, let's all go. Who wants to do hot yoga? <laughs> but now I can do that. You came on in 1981. Your father was on earlier than you, and uh, your job was 100% to correct crime, take the bad guys off the street. Now I'm going to say maybe one-third of it is correcting crime, one-third of it is maybe fighting terrorism or being more aware, and maybe the other one-third is uh, community policing to rebuild stuff. Coming on now, would, it be a completely, would you be completely lost or being a leader now, would that be so tough for you? And maybe that's why it's tougher for maybe older officers to mold into that or no? No, it's... It always was a full picture for me. And, and we left something out there, um, building up the, the cops and the teams. Mm-hmm. I, I was in, a, in an executive seminar about two or three years ago at Columbia, and the presenter gets up there with the, 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 the easel and says, okay, and he asks everybody, all deputy commissioners and chiefs, and he says, okay, what's the mission? So somebody says public safety, and he puts up public safety, and everybody starts to write subdivisions of that. And I raised my hand and said, wait a minute, the mission of our NYPD, of our agency, is public safety. But the mission of the people in this room is to support the people who carry out the mission. 
That should be a whole separate en- entry. What is what does your day look like, and how much of it is to support the people who support the mission? What does your le- year look like? What is it? Just look, we just have to look at an, an audit of our calendar, and how much of that is to support the people that support the mission, and regardless of jumping out of the car and saying hello and thank you. I mean, actually, how much of it is training? How much of it is appearance of training? How much of it is medal days? How much of it is going? How, how much of it is going to hospitals to visit members? I mean, the, the calling people on birthdays. You know, how much of it is? Do your COs know to say, Chief, this guy made a really good collar. You may want to call him. I mean, t- t- I think that's what that's what we are as executives. I think that's the most important thing we could do. That's interesting. Really interesting. Give the plug now for your Twitter, which is fun, <laughs> your Instagram, which you – let me say this. I don't have Instagram, but I'm a little creepy. I'll go on your Instagram because I don't have it, and you post pictures of you from 30 years ago standing mm. like by – so give the plug for all your Instagram, your Twitter, well, all your social thing. media stuff. I think it's joe.fox81 <laughs> on Instagram. Twitter, it's Joe Fox or Joe It's Facebook. It's a public page. But when people say, um, how do you like being retired, and I know I only have a second – I say I love being Joe Fox, and I love being Joe Fox on social media because I loved connecting with people on the job, but it was always face-to-face, a speech, you know, a, a, a one-on-one, but now I get to do it, do it remotely, and it, and it means the world to me. And anytime I get a message from somebody that says, your posts lift me up, I look forward to them, it's all I need to hear, and you'll, I just need to hear that once, and you'll hear from me for the rest of our lives. I don't like the way, and we're not going to get into it. We're going to finish up. I don't like the way you were. You left the job. I thought you should have stayed on forever. If there wasn't a mandatory retirement age, and whatever happened didn't happen, would you have stayed on for as long as possible? Or you think you actually, would? Actually, no. You know, it, it, a couple of days after that, I said to myself, "Why am I so okay with this?" And I started to do a little like reflection, and I realized that I've been teaching for years. What I'm going to draw on now, and that is, we are not our titles. We never were. Mm-hmm. It's the humanity we bring to our titles. And when we identify by our titles, we lose our humanity. We can't have both. And it, it, and it, and it really, I really, like I was never just about being a cop and never just being about a police, being a police chief and it, and it, and it never will be. And it's, we just have so much more to offer and it, regardless of who we are. Chief Fox, a legend with the NYPD. This was an absolute blast, my friend. This was great. Thank, Thank you so you. much. This was, this was so it. worth waiting Just, uh, for. Just before we go, I always ask this to one, every, everyone who's on my show. And I don't know if this is going to apply to you. You and I are sitting at a bar. You want to impress people. Nobody gives a crap about the NYPD or Chief Fox. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? They would impress people. Well. You have to have one cool name that everyone does. His name is God. I actually have a friend named God. <laughs> And every now and then he calls me and I hold up the phone and show everybody, look, God is calling me. He pronounces his last name G-O-D. And I say, should I take his call or not? And actually he's a dear friend who I'm going to call when I leave here now. I'm going to let that question go. It was so good. Absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you.